Hi, I'm Marlon Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I have got another call-in episode. I've got call-ins from Jason Connerly and from Brian in the park, and um, I'm going to respond to Jason's call-ins. He's got one set of three and one kind of alone, and then Brian has another set of three. So I'm going to respond to each set of call-ins, maybe respond live to each section. Who knows? I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to gonna break up my responses or anything. But yeah, um, it's always good to have uh, call-ins to respond to. So that allows for episodes like this one, call-in shows. So yeah, let us get into it. Hey, Arlen, Jason here. Just want to say enjoyed your review of There and Back Again. Uh, it is a neat little system. Ray has a number of neat games over there on his Itch.io page. Or, you know, I know you linked to Ray's page in there. Highly recommend people check that out. You know, he has a number of little games that work different ways, but all really evoke the feeling of what he's going for. I guess the other interesting thing you mentioned that I think is worth discussion sometime is the idea of, you know, a lighter, a game with less rules having less staying power. You know, ha, you know, is it okay to run a long campaign with lasers and feelings or there back again or crisis or, you know, what, you know, insert light game here, right? And, and, and this idea has come up again and again by different podcasters. Most notably, Joe Richter has mentioned this, as has, somebody else, but Joe's the one I think of over Hindsightless, because he was looking for a game when he, you know, for Wheel and Woe back when they, you know, when they finished Pathfinder 2, and he's looking around, he looked at this game and that game and thought, well, no, that's not light enough. There aren't enough rules here to keep the players interested. So I guess that's the question. And as you very astutely mentioned in your review there back again, it really depends on the group. Different people play RPGs for different reasons. If you're playing and you're not worried about the mechanics, I think you could easily use one of these lighter games for a long campaign. But if you're somebody that needs a crunch, that is interested in mechanically seeing your character advance or being able to mechanically do things instead of narratively do things, if you prefer to do things mechanically as opposed to narratively, I think it's a problem. Sorry, I cut out, and then my phone was messed up, so I'm not sure. I probably said the same thing twice. Sorry about that. But but I do think this idea of a lighter rule set not being suitable for a long game is interesting, and I think it comes back to how crunchy people want games to be and how, much, how many mechanics they want to be able to interact with and whether you can narratively say, I jump in the air and spin twice and chop his head off compared to wanting rules that out, you know, rules that where you roll to see if you jump, roll to see if you spin twice, and roll to see if you cut his head off. So I think that's an interesting question. I'd like to explore that more, but anyway, I'll let you go. Take care. All right. So that was Jason calling in about the there and back again overview. Um, glad you liked it, Jason. I had a lot of fun recording it. I know it was mostly just me. Um, reading out the text, but I felt like with a as kind of light a game as that is, that that would be just fine to just kind of 
read out the text and say, hey, this is how you you actually play it. Um, so that you don't need well, basically you don't need my opinions on it. You need you can go play it yourself. Um anyway, the thing about light rule systems not lending themselves to longer games, I think I'm not entirely sure why this is. I think you you made a really good point about kind of how sort of narratively the group is playing versus how much kind of mechanical influence there is on the way that the group is playing. Um, I think we can see this in like, for instance, in um, even in like board games, right? That um, as a sort of general rule of thumb, board games that uh, are lighter on the rules or simpler, simpler rule setup often in related to that is the the kind of quicker movement through the whole game and specifically that the, the kind of whole the the kind of full game cycle is faster right and i think that's actually related that there's this idea within within board games that you know if you want to have like a game that lasts eight or nine hours you need a sort of level of complexity to make the eight or nine hours of play interesting uh, versus if you want a game that is only going to last one hour, um, you can get away with a, uh, a much less complex game where you're not going to get bored of the kind of regular repeated interaction. I think that's one of the, the things that goes into it is that there's this idea that, um, less rules and less kind of complex rules often means that mechanically the game is more static and that a mechanically static game will only be interesting to mechanically invested players for so long until they need some some mechanical dynamic stuff to kind of feature within the game right in essence that um Well, basically, that the the game as a whole, if it, it requires a sort of level of dynamic mechanical elements to create a in, interesting and and kind of worth investing in element, and I don't think that's necessarily true for all RPGs. I think there are groups that play much kind of lighter and faster games. Um, or that uh, are less interested in the particular mechanics. Um, but I think it is often true, especially as you get players who are heavily invested in the game, that they are often heavily invested in the mechanics and that therefore they are going to be um, the sort who want that, you know, more... Not even necessarily more stuff, but more more mechanical um, depth to the game to create that mechanical dynamism, right? The idea being that, well, if you have, right, the more rules that you have for fights, the more different these different fights can feel on some level on just the mechanics. Now you can describe the fights in very different ways um, and describe how things are happening differently than your um, 
than in other cases. But I think there's a there's a real I think you you really um, got a long way with it by saying that it it's going to depend on the group and how they interact with the mechanics. For instance, my my Thursday night group, they're not very mechanically minded. They could probably play there and back again for a long time and enjoy it and just have fun kind of exploring the world. But a lot of groups that I played with, I think will end up saying, you know what, there just isn't enough, isn't enough kind of mechanically here to create that um, mechanical dynamism, basically. I think that that's sort of where I'm, I'm landing on that subject for now. Although I will think more about it and probably come back to it in a later episode, maybe even next episode. But thank you for calling in, Jason. And um, I've got more from Jason. So let's hear that. Hey, Alan, Jason here. Just listen to your... Player's Guide and Lore Master's Guide for Adventures Middle-Earth. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think I read that the when they redo the 5e version, I, I've never seen them say they're going to call it Adventures of Middle-Earth again, but, you know, when the new company redoes it, I think they said they're going to redo the journey mechanic, that the journey mechanic was something they're going to rework. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. I don't know if they're going to rework it for the One Ring Second Edition or not. So it'll be interesting to see how all that shakes out in the new editions that are coming out. But yeah, I really enjoyed playing it, and I hope we can play it again at some point. So looking forward to tomorrow's episode. Take care. All right, more from Jason. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that much information about free league's plans with regard to the one ring and adventures in middle earth or whatever they call their 5e compatible version i know i did see that they were planning on making a 5e compatible version of the one ring second edition um so that people who like adventures in middle earth could play something um and also because in general it seems like it's it's just good business practice to have a 5e version of what you're working on because 5e is overwhelmingly the largest game on the market and so you can get players buying your game and invested in your company and all that sort of stuff by doing 5e versions so i mean i think that was a big reason that cubicle 7 originally did the adventures in middle earth line and yeah i haven't seen i i will be very interested to see what Adventure, not Adventures in Middle Earth, what the One Ring Second Edition actually looks like, because um, Cubicle Seven was pretty open with what the the plans were for Second Edition. Um, Free League has not been nearly as open. I think they're at an earlier kind of stage of development because Cubicle Seven's One Ring Second Edition was, as I understand it, basically done and ready to go to the printer when the the issue with licensing happened um but yeah i i'm not sure i wonder what 
One Ring Second Edition from Free League will look like? Will it look like Cubicle 7's plan for Second Edition, or will it be different? Will it look more different than um, First Edition One Ring than uh, Cubicle 7's plan was? I don't know. It's gonna. I'm not entirely sure what it's gonna look like, and I think they haven't been super open about what it is going to look like. So I don't know. I guess we'll see. Um, yeah, we'll have to see. I would not be surprised. I would be a little surprised if journey mechanics get too reworked with the one ring second edition, because I think they work really well with first edition, to be honest, um, with adventures in middle earth, second edition, or whatever they call the new five E compatible version. I would not be surprised if journeys get a little bit of an overhaul. Um, it, uh, there's some, I think, I think, uh, a journey system that has, well, I think there are some changes that could be made to the journey system to make it feel even, even more thematic and stuff. Um, and I think I would not be surprised if some of those changes get implemented into the 5e version. So anyway, We've got Brian up next, and Brian has a couple of questions for me, so I think I'm going to respond to each question of his when it comes up. Um, but yeah, let's let's listen to Brian. Howdy, Pelham's Wasteland. Live from Pelham's Wasteland, it is Brian. Brian in the park. 11-8-2020 at 6.35 Pacific. Uh, I have a couple things. I did. I haven't ignored you. I, I did record one, but I, I deleted it by accident, of course. And, you know, that's how it goes. So this first message is, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the whole, the DM is God thing. What do you think about when somebody says, I'm the DM, I am God. I can do whatever I want. I'm uh, just wondering what you think about that. And I got another thing I'm going to call right back um, using the anchor one minute. All right. Yeah, I'll be right back. All right. DM as God. Um, I have a number of thoughts about this, and it's kind of a complicated issue to my mind. So what I might do is give you a short version now and then do another kind of full episode about this concept later, Brian. Um, the short answer is I think it's um, basically abusive, and it is a uh, major cause of the various horror stories that we hear about within the RPG community and um, is basically kind of a, a shitty position to hold, a shitty um, way to behave in a game. I think it is, um, there are times when it is necessary for the game master to take a more aggressive stance in terms of control of the game or of the rules or of the players or anything like that. Um, but I tend to think that the DM's power beyond kind of 
game interpreter and sort of scene describer um, is often a sort of uh, necessary evil, if that makes sense, that um, in a perfect world, the game master in a, a perfect world where everything is flowing smoothly, the game master actually wouldn't have to exercise much power at all in playing the game. Um, and that the, the kind of issues that come up um, are often related to, well, but that basically, um, I don't know. I think it really comes down to DM as God. Certainly if a DM said that, I would be like, all right, that's fine, but I'm not playing at your table anymore um, because I don't think that is the appropriate way to uh, handle problems or anything like that as the, the, the DM or GM. And that's just kind of me. Anyway, um, but I'm going to do, I'm probably going to do a longer episode on this because I see a number of things related to this in kind of hobby discussion. And I think it's worth talking about um, some of those things. Yeah, I'm Pelham's Wasteland. Brian again. I'm wondering what you think about if I told you DMs get the players they deserve. I'm starting to see that if you're a new DM and just starting out, maybe you have a, have a hard time getting a player or two or, or, or even getting a group. If you've been doing it out a while, like, like Hobbs, you can say, well, I'm not doing anything for anybody. You, you can muster and I'll get to you when I get to you. Um, so, I, you know, I'm sort of, my game is bulking up uh, because I've been working at it for a while and I'm going to have a lot more players uh, when I come back on Saturday. So that's another thing. Uh, uh, DM's getting the players they deserve. What do you think about that? And I will be back one more minute. DMs getting the players they deserve. I don't necessarily think that is true. I think there's often a relationship between the DMs kind of quality, as we might say, um, and having kind of players coming back and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there's no way, right? There isn't really any way to know if a DM is going to be a good fit for you without playing with them often. Um, in which case, you know, when you see people, I mean, I think I take objection to the idea about deserve particularly. One of the things, for instance, is that, uh, if you are desperate for players, there's always more more players who are interested in running certain in, in playing certain games than other games, right? If a, a DM who is desperate for players, if you start running fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, players are going to show up. Now they might not be the players you want necessarily. You might get players who you're like, oh, this is not really. Uh, the sort of person I want in my game sometimes. There's probably plenty of that. But ultimately, I think my point is that um, so much of 
like who who the game caters to, who is interested in the game before interest in the DM or GM is a really big factor too, right? That um, I I agree that it can be hard to get a game running, especially early on in somebody's career as a, a GM, um, and especially online, if you want to, if you know you're a GM who wants to run a kind of more niche game and are trying to, you know, doing your best to find players, but having trouble finding people to play the specific game you want to run. I agree that that can be hard, but I think I don't know. I think that the idea that the the GM ends up with players that they ends up in the position that they deserve to be in um, doesn't really recognize all of the kind of other factors that are involved in that position being the in 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 that kind of total framework if that makes sense. I think, for example, um, I'm just as a sort of counterexample, I'm lucky enough that I've got um, on Thursday nights, I play games with my family, um, with uh, my mom and dad and little sister and grandfather. Um, And that's not because I'm a really good game master. I tend to think that I'm, I tend to feel like that I'm a pretty good game master and all that sort of stuff, but they would probably be interested in doing something with me together anyway, sort of no matter what, right? Their interest in the game has as much to do with everybody getting to see everybody else and talk to everybody else as it does the actual game um, often. Now, they really enjoy the games, it seems like. They, they tell me that they enjoy them and they seem to have a lot of fun in the games and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, my sort of point is that it doesn't necessarily it's not really because i'm a good gm that i have those players um now with players that you're not related to or anything it's a little different because they probably don't have that much attachment to um seeing each other and all that sort of stuff but i think there's still an element of there's a whole lot of factors that go into the the GM getting the getting a, a situation where they have good players who want to play in their game and all that sort of stuff, right? Um, and I don't think it's just a matter of the GM being a better a, a better GM getting more and better players. I don't think that is a uh, fair assessment of the sort of complicated things that go on. I do think often it does happen that really good GMs will end up with uh, a crew of people who want to play in their games regularly and all that sort of stuff. Um, You know, look at, if you look at like uh, Kevin Madison with Dungeon Musings, I think he's a really good GM and I think he, you know, has 
got a whole crew of people who want to be in his games and he's also got you know gets requests from other people to play in his game and has to turn people away just because they're uh part of that has to do with having the youtube channel right that's another sort of factor in getting a a good crew together i mean i myself discovered kevin through his youtube channel and um, got lucky enough to play in his ash game and now get to play in a lot of his games but you know um it's uh there are a lot of ways that people find games and a lot of reasons people decide that they like or dislike a gm or all of that sort of stuff i think it's a lot more complicated than just the the GM gets the players that they deserve. Going way back to the Gandalf talk, when he was in the Mines of Moria and the demon was trying to cross that uh, stone bridge and he was telling him, you shall not pass, what spell was that? And the demon started to move on the bridge. Didn't he like hit it with his staff and it broke the bridge and the bridge collapsed? I mean, that probably was some sort of magic. I mean, a staff normally doesn't do uh, break a stone when you hit it. I, I don't I mean, maybe Thor can do that with his hammer, but I don't think Gandalf could without some sort of magic. Or maybe the demon's weight just broke it. I don't know. But there it is. That So it's good to be back on Pelham's Wasteland. Arlen, you have a good week. <laughs> Yeah, so Gandalf and the Bridge of Khazad-dûm. Um, I, to be honest, uh, do not remember exactly how it's described in the book. In the movie, certainly, what Gandalf does, he shouts, you shall not pass, and he smashes his his staff down against the, the surface of the bridge, and then it's unclear... It, it seems like the bridge doesn't actually start to break until the Balrog steps onto the bridge and that its weight causes the, the bridge to collapse. And so it's unclear whether Gandalf has kind of done something terribly magical or if he sort of just, just knew that the, the bridge would collapse under the Balrog's weight. Um, seems like there may be some magic involved to like weaken the bridge or something. I don't know what, what particular spell that would be. Um, but I think overall, that's actually a good example of the way that magic in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit often has a greater kind of narrative quality than it does a um, kind of spell list prepared action quality that you know gandalf's player says well i want to you know weaken the bridge so that when the barog steps on it it's going to collapse and the gm says okay i don't necessarily know what spell that is but i have some sense of kind of like how much magical power that would take so why don't you you know spend a certain number of spell points and roll to see if you're successful um i think that fits much more with how a lot of the magic is done in um, in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, that it's much more kind of narratively the the player you 
doing the magic kind of says, here's what I, here's what I'm interested in causing to happen. Um, rather than, you know, saying, oh, I've got my, you know, this specific spell that lets me do this specific thing. <sighs> yeah. So I think that's that's an interesting example. Um, certainly, I don't think that either in the book or the movie, it's implied that Gandalf actually, you know, smashes through the bridge with his staff. Um, I think the expectation is that the, the Balrogs, per, you know, its weight drags it down back to the depths. Um, but I will have to, I will have to reread that section of the fellowship of the ring again to know for certain how it's described in the book. So anyway, um, yeah, I think that's it for Brian's Collins. So let's go to the outro. All right. So that is it. That's the episode. That's all I got for today. Um, probably coming back tomorrow with an episode just about kind of, um, you know, less of a call-in show and more of a me rambling show and all that sort of stuff. So we'll see about that. Um, if you want to get in contact with me, I'm at cows from Powis on Twitter. I am on anchor here, anchor.fm slash Pelham's wasteland. I'm on YouTube as well. YouTube channel is called live from Pelham's wasteland just like the podcast and um yeah if you are interested in getting a hold of me you should do that and uh leave a comment or leave a message like brian and jason or whatever else you might want to do to get in contact with me um yeah i think that's gonna be everything so I've been Arlen Walker, I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.